everybody. Welcome to the Scripture Chronicles, the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. As per usual, I'm Dylan, and joining me today is, once again, Corey Howitt. And Corey does not seem to understand the concept of a Skype call. Ordinarily, on a Skype call, what you do is you wear your best suit on the top, and you wear your pajama pants or underwear on the bottom. However, Corey seems to have reversed that and is going completely shirtless yet again today. Corey, what do you have to say for yourself? I just got to show off. We're, uh, for those of you listening, right now we're recording this call in the middle of November. And Dylan is in Colorado where he's got a fireplace and it's cold. I'm in Hawaii and I can still go shirtless and be a little bit warm. So I just want to show off. And I'm actually going very much reverse. I'm wearing these shorts I got married in because, you know, in Hawaii, you get married in shorts and it's not weird. But yeah, I'm wearing my favorite shorts, my wedding shorts. So it's very serious on the bottom. So I just feel like reversing things up. It's like the reverse mullet. Anyway, guys, thank you for joining us today for this episode. If you are not familiar with the process or if you're a first-time listener, basically our episodes build on one another. We are going through the biblical text showing the unified narrative or unified story of the entire Bible. Because of that, all of these episodes actually build on one another as we go through the biblical text. So if you have not yet done so, it does make the most sense to go back and listen to these episodes sequentially so that you understand what we're going through in today's episode. If you don't have time to do that, however, we do always give a brief recap of the episode preceding this one so that you can at least understand the context of exactly what we're going into today. That being said, we are going through Genesis chapter 37 through 41 today. And last week, We went through Genesis chapter 30 through 36. So let's go ahead and give a brief recap of 30 through 36. And then we're going to go ahead and jump into today's episode. So I'm turning the floor over to Corey. Corey, what do you got for us? Last week, uh, we went over, well, we started at the end of chapter 29. So from the end of chapter 9 through 36, it starts out with um, Jacob's son. So We go through a list of all of Jacob's sons and how each of their names is very significant. Uh, So if you want to hear all the the names and what they mean, you can go back through our episode or you just pick, you know, a Bible that has the notes that tell you such things or go on to the Logos app or something like that where you can find out all the definitions to the names of each and every one of Jacob's sons. Um, But then after we have a list of Jacob's sons, um, we have Jacob coming back into his home country, the land where he left um, to go back to the land of his father. And so he's coming back to the promised land and he has to meet up with his brother Esau. And he was really nervous about it, but it all works out as, as he's um, nervous in his camp. Um, he realizes that, well, one, God has blessed me abundantly. Um, He calls the camp Mahanaim, which means two camps. So Jacob becomes big enough where he has two camps now. So he spent the last 20 years just serving Laban, his wife's father, and he got a bunch of goods 
from Laban because God blessed him. And then as he's getting ready to go and meet Esau, God meets him and God actually wrestles with him. It was a really weird encounter. And that's the encounter where Jacob is actually renamed into Israel. Israel literally means um, he strives with God. And so we talked about a few things, all that's been going on in this chapter that, you know, even in the stories of Jacob's sons, um, we have some barrenness among his wives and his wives didn't handle it well. So they made like the same mistakes that Abraham did and Sarah with getting Hagar. Here we see instead of Jacob, you know, submitting to God's will, he's wrestling with God, demanding God to bless him. Um, we talked about that as a story that a lot of times we want to make Jacob the hero, but really it's um, not a great heroic thing. Um, and then when Jacob goes to meet Esau, he tries to like bribe Esau for his favor. Um, and when he comes to Esau, Esau says, what's all these gifts for? Like, I'm just happy to see you. And Jacob says, no, no, take them. And he says, all right, well, uh, Esau to Jacob. Esau's saying, all right, let's go back. I'll come with you. And Jacob says, no, 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 I'll follow behind. And again, Jacob shows, you know, the meaning of his name coming out that um, he cheats. So he cheats or lies to his brother. And once Esau's ahead of him, Jacob goes another way. And we don't hear of him interacting with Esau again. And so um, we then get into, um, once again, to the promised land. The sister, the one daughter that Jacob has, a sister of all the 12 brothers, um, she gets raped by a guy named Shechem. So Simeon and Levi trick the town, just like what their father does. He tricks the whole town, um, has all the men get circumcised. Then they go through and um, annihilate all the men in the town. It's really brutal. Through that, we have another encounter of God and uh, Jacob, where Jacob names the place Bethel, which means the house of God. Um, kind of a recap again of why he got the name Israel. And in chapter 36, we just kind of pointed out that this is one of those um, lines where it says, these are the generations of, and chapter 36 are the generations of Esau. Um, and so we just mentioned it and said, go and read through it, and you can see some names that come up later on in the story. We didn't really go through it too much, but the big thing to take away from the uh, generations of Esau or from chapter 36 is that Esau took some not good wives. He got a wife from the Canaanites, a wife from the Hittites, a wife from the Hivites, and a wife from Ishmael's daughter. So just all these really bad nations who we'll soon see in books to come experience God's judgment. And Esau is, um, he becomes, or his descendants become the nation of Edom, which is again another nation that um, Israel struggles with through um, a lot of the, the story of the Old Testament. So lots of really not good stuff from last week. Lots of struggles, lots of strife. Jacob's wife, Rachel, the one that he loved, had also passed away. Quite a bummer of uh, storyline from chapters 30 to 36. All right. So what I want to do is I actually want to zoom out about a thousand percent. And I want to go over 
kind of the main theme that we've been tracing all the way up until this point. And so essentially what we've been seeing all the way from the beginning of Genesis and Genesis 3.15 is that there is supposed to come a blessed seed. And so what we've been following then is this blessed seed. Who is this blessed seed? Where is this blessed seed going to come from? And how is this blessed seed going to restore the perfect thing that we had at Eden? And so, and asking that question, who is this blessed seed and how are they actually going to restore the ideal state? We've been going through main characters that the text has brought up, asking the question, is this person going to be that blessed seed? So far, we have not actually come across a character that fits the qualifications of the blessed seed. And so each character that comes up as the protagonist, we've asked that question, is this going to be that blessed seed? Thus far, as I've already said, we have not yet come across that blessed seed. Each of the protagonists have had their own issues. As a result, we can affirm the fact that they are not actually that blessed seed, but we've been following that line of blessing as we've been going so that eventually we will find this character. So with that, we asked the question uh, in last week's episode, is Jacob the guy? We verified that Jacob is definitely not the guy. And so now going into Jacob's sons, we are now looking, okay, maybe one of these guys is the guy, excuse me. So today we're going to be jumping into the Joseph narrative. And Joseph is going to be a key character that's going to go from chapter 37 all of the way through the end of the book. And so we're going to be seeing a lot of Joseph. Interestingly, he's not the only main character that we're going to be paying attention to. And we'll get into that in just a second. So let's go ahead and jump into today's episode, and we'll start out in chapter 37. What we're going to do is we're going to go through these chapters in a broad macroscopic fashion, meaning that instead of reading the entire thing and going through verse by verse, we're going to go through the main story arc of each chapter to try to give you a cumulative understanding of the story as it unfolds. So then with that, jumping into chapter 37, Corey, what are your initial thoughts, impressions, and things that we think we should take away? Man, some big questions. Well, um, let's just kind of go through some bullet points as we start. Uh, So first of all, verse 1 starts with Jacob going back to the land of Canaan, right? So we question his decision to leave. We remembered Abraham was so adamant that Isaac should never return there. Isaac didn't pass on the same worry to his son Jacob not to go there. So Jacob went there for 20 years. He's finally back. So things are looking good, right? And so verse 2, we then see one of these lines that these are the generations of Jacob. So remember, there's 11 of these um, which split up the book into 12 different ways. And so we have another one of those, although we just saw all of Jacob's sons and all their namings. Now here's them living it out. We haven't seen much from their sons except for Simeon and Levi and Reuben all doing really terrible things. Reuben had slept with one of his father's concubines. And so now we get into the story of Joseph and Joseph was his 11th born, firstborn of his favorite wife. And we see that uh, verse 3, Jacob 
loved Joseph, or his name is Israel stated here. Um, and the author uses those interchangeably a lot. Um, so anyways, Israel loves Joseph. And he gave Joseph an extravagant robe. Um, a lot of translations will say a robe of many colors. Um, and so he gives Joseph this great robe. And then we see reaction from his brothers. So this is going to be something pretty common, um, especially in chapter 37. Um, either Joseph will do something or his father will do something for Joseph. And then the brothers will react. And it's pretty much always hating him or being jealous of him. The next little section, um, verses 5 through 11, Joseph has two dreams. Um, one dream is that there's a bunch of sheaves like of wheat in this field, and they all bow down to Joseph, Joseph's sheaf. So there's 11 sheaves, meaning that um, all of his brothers will bow down to him. And so the brothers hear it, and they say, are, are you going to rule over us? And so they hate him. Okay. Uh, the second dream comes up in verse 9. And he had a dream about the sun, the moon, and 11 stars all bowing down to him. And this time his father, Jacob, actually rebukes him, saying, what? Is me, your mother, the stars and the moon, and these stars, are we all going to bow down to you as well? And so there, you, again, you have the brothers being jealous of him. But yet, Jacob, although he kind of rebuked his son, it says that he kept the saying in mind. We have Joseph dreaming dreams, and the brothers are jealous or hate Joseph, um, and yet his dad loves him, and his dad is keeping these things in mind. So he has a feeling that something is maybe going to come up with this. Anything else in this section, Dylan? It's interesting to me that Jacob is actually the one who keeps these things in mind. Even though he rebukes Joseph for the dreams that he has, Jacob is still keeping these things in the back of his head going, well, maybe something actually might come of this. And so Jacob, as we discussed a few weeks ago, is not a good character or has not been a good character up until this point, meaning that he, as his name implies, cheated and deceived his way all the way through the blessing process. He actually stole the blessing from his older brother, and yet God has been faithful to him. Now we see maybe Jacob's become a little bit wiser. Maybe he actually has learned something through this whole process. Moreover, I wanted to point out the very beginning of chapter 37. Verse 1 states that Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Now, the reason I want to point that out is that that is actually a very positive statement. We have seen how Abraham, as well as Isaac, both actually got wives for their sons from the land of their people, yet neither one of them wanted their sons to actually leave Canaan. That was a big sticking point for both of these characters. So Abraham went so far as to actually send a servant to get a wife for his son, so that his son would not leave the land of Canaan. Jacob left the land of Canaan, and when he did, we pointed out why that was a bad thing in the narrative. However, what we should now see is that Jacob is back in the land, living where he should be. So that is actually a really positive thing. This entire narrative, now that we're going to see, 
takes place, at least starting out in the land of Canaan, where we want to be. So that sets up the setting and gives us solid precedence for what's going to follow. Let's go ahead and keep moving now and talk about how Joseph, after having been favored by his father and hated by his brothers as a result, is actually sold into slavery because of the schemings of his brothers. And so Jacob, after having received this coat of many colors or ornate coat or coat with long sleeves, depending what your translation says, he actually is sent to go to his brothers by his father. And so when he goes to his brothers, his brothers start plotting and scheming and thinking how they might kill him. And as a result, Reuben decides, well, maybe instead of killing him, we can actually you know, save him by sticking him in a cistern. Let's not hurt him. Let's just put him in this hole in the ground, leave him there. And Reuben has a scheme that maybe if we stick him there, I can come back later and bring him back to my father. And so they go in and they stick him in the cistern. And then as uh, assumedly Reuben is no longer there, the brothers actually decide, hey, there's a group of Ishmaelites that are rolling through town. Why don't we grab them out of the cistern and sell them to them. So they grab Jacob out of the cistern and sell him to the Ishmaelites. Once they sell Joseph, Reuben comes back, finds that Joseph is no longer in the cistern and freaks out. And so what they do at that point is they take Joseph, coat of many colors or long sleeves or whatever, and they dip it in blood. And so they take this coat dipped in blood and deliver it back to Jacob saying that your son has been killed. Little does Jacob know that Joseph is actually well and alive on his way to Egypt. Dun, dun, dun. We should be getting big red flags when that name comes up. So Joseph is now on his way to Egypt, sold as a slave to these Ishmaelites. Remember who the Ishmaelites are? Going back to Abraham and his son Ishmael. Yep, those guys. Interestingly, the Ishmaelites are talked about kind of interchangeably as Ishmaelites or Midianites, both bad characters referencing Abraham. Corey has more to say on that. Yeah, to comment on the interchange between Ishmael and Midian, um, I take this to be, and I, I could be wrong, so don't go and uh, take this to the bank, uh, but it seems to be a theological move by the author. Um, so remember, Ishmael was Abraham's first son by Hagar, and Midian was a son that came after his wife Sarah's death. So after Sarah died, Abraham took another wife and had more sons, and Midian was one of those sons. So it seems just to be um, these sons of Abraham that he shouldn't have had are coming back to play this role in this story as an agent, just to move the story along, but it's not good for Israel's most loved son, Joseph, right? So Midian, Ishmael, they're a line that we have seen, but they're not the blessed line, but they're going to uh, make life harder on the blessed line. Joseph is on his way to Egypt at the hands of the Midianites or the Ishmaelites. And as we're wondering, like, okay, he's, he's sold to Egypt. Oh, he's sold to Potiphar. He's an officer of Pharaoh. He's the captain of the guard. And then we jump right into chapter 38, which it says it happened at that time that Judah 
went down from his brothers. Okay, and so we go to this totally new story, right? So we, we start off with Joseph, and I mean, God seems to be blessing Joseph with, that, with at least uh, having dreams that, you know, for, at this point, we don't really know if they're good or not. We don't know if he's just showing off or what. But the focus goes from Joseph directly to Judah, and we get a little bit of Judah's life. So Judah has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And uh, Judah found a wife for his firstborn son, Ur, whose name was Tamar. Um, but verse 7 of chapter 38 says, uh, Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death. That's pretty tough. You almost wish you had more details on that, but that's all that God's uh, desires to show with us. So then Judah tells Onan, Onan, or Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law and raise up an offspring for your brother. And so Onan didn't want to do this. And so every time um, they would go to have sex, he would spill out his semen and would just refuse to do the duty of the older brother. And so this was wicked in the sight of the Lord. In verse 10, the Lord also put him to death. And then there was just one last son of Judah remaining. And so Judah comes out with this clever scheme, again, kind of like his father Jacob. And Judah tells Tamar, well, you know what? Why don't you go back to your father's house and wait a while? And I'll, I'll come and get you when Shelah grows up a little bit, when he's old enough to marry. And so uh, intentions of Judah are shared with us here at the end of verse 11. Um, Judah feared that his last son would also die. It's almost like he blames Tamar or is scared that she's some sort of bad luck omen. And so he keeps uh, Shelah from Tamar, which was a wicked thing to do. It wasn't the right thing. And so as the story goes on, Judah and his friend Hira, they go to shear some sheep um, in another place, in another town. And uh, Tamar hears of it and kind of a famous story. She dresses up as a prostitute and she goes in a place where Judah, her father-in-law, can see her and she gets him to sleep with her. And before um, this interaction happens, she asks for a pledge. And so she asks for his signet and his cord and his staff. Okay, so then... Um, Judah slept with her, and then uh, Tamar takes off. She takes all these things that she collected from Judah and takes off um, these garments that were used to trick her father-in-law and puts back on her garments of widowhood. And so as the story continues, Judah hears that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And he says, wow, how despicable of her to do that. Like, you know, for an adulteress, we have to kill her. And so... He sends word, let's go and kill Tamar. Tamar hears of it and says, all right, well, um, perhaps you can identify the person I've slept with. Here are his signet, his cord, and his staff. And to which when Judah sees that, he says, wow, um, this woman is more righteous than I. So out of this, Judah repents, realizing that he is the one who has committed the great sin, not just with Tamar, but also in keeping his son from Tamar. And so uh, he obviously lets Tamar live. And we see the birth story of these sons that Tamar has through Judah. And 
she has twins, Zara and Perez. And a cool little story as the babies are born, one hand sticks out and they put a little scarlet thread around it and say, oh, this one came out first. But the hand comes back in and then Perez comes out and is born first. And so Perez is born first and then Zara, the scarlet thread comes out. And pretty cool, like in Judah's uh, repentance, he never touches or sleeps with Tamar again. So a really um, cool repentant moment from a really awful story. I think there are a few things that are important to keep in mind with this particular section. First off, it is an interesting story. It's interesting in its location. Why all of a sudden, after introducing Joseph, a character who's actually going to be on the scene for the remainder of the book, why interrupt that with a chapter talking about Judah? We're actually going to have more to say on that in a little bit, probably in next week's episode. However, keep that in the back of your mind as to why Judah comes up all of a sudden. Next, we have this interesting little bit about one brother dying and another brother having to take that brother's wife and produce children for the brother who died. That's his duty. Well, where does this idea come from? Has the text said anything to allude to this up until this point? No, as a matter of fact, it has not. A modern reader might be tempted then to actually go and grab a history book or uh, a book on anthropology and look up common practices of ancient Middle Eastern cultures, something that was a regular thing that they did in this particular culture. Why? Why not? However, you don't actually have to go to that anthropology or history book in order to figure out what's going on. And this is a common thing throughout the Bible. Scripture interprets Scripture. Deuteronomy 25 actually has a law in it that states that if a brother dies, it is actually the duty of the younger brother to take the wife of the brother who died and to actually produce offspring for the brother who died. So what this text is actually referencing then is a law that we won't actually come across until Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of our Bibles and the Torah. Why does it go all the way forward when this actually hasn't been mentioned in the text up until this point? Well, there's two things I'd like to point out on this. And, and the first is something that we've already talked about. The Torah is actually meant to be read over and over and over again. It's not meant to be read once and then done. As such, the text will actually utilize verses and things from in the future, especially in the Torah, because it's expecting you to read through the entire thing and then go back and reread it and meditate on it. So when this text actually cites Deuteronomy 25, it's expecting you to know that at some point, meaning that this could be your second or third read through of the Torah and that you actually now know that this is an allusion or a hyperlink forward to Deuteronomy 25. Moreover, keep in mind what and who this was being written to and written by. So it was being written by Moses to Israel. And so this is stuff that Israel would actually have been introduced to 
at this time of reading it. It's not something, again, that's meant to be read once and then done. It's something that is Torah. It's God's instruction. So it's meant to be read and contemplated over and over. So keep that in mind as we go through it, as we see these allusions to things in the future. Oftentimes, it's because we're supposed to keep that in mind. And then on second read through, we'll know that. Yeah, very well said. The Bible's constantly forward-looking and backwards-looking. Um, and we, we've seen this before. We've seen this um, when we ask, like, well, why are Cain and Abel even offering sacrifices? How did Isaac know and Abraham know to bring a lamb to offer to God? And again, the audience that Moses was originally talking to and writing to knew the context, and we will know it as we read and reread through it. Great points, Dylan. So let's continue on. Let's go into chapter 39. We're done with the weird interruption into the life of Judah. And again, keep that in mind. Why is Judah talked about here? And why not any of the other brothers? We're done with the interruption of Judah's story and go back to Joseph, who is in Egypt. Okay, so here we start off with the Midianites. Well, we left off with the Midianites holding him the polypher, but here it says he was bought from the Ishmaelites. So again, we're showing they're interchangeable. And so as we get past that, as it starts out, Joseph's life in prison and captivity. If we're wondering, was Joseph's character, was he just a show-off to his brothers? Well, in verse 2 of chapter 39, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. And skipping a little bit, his master saw that the Lord was with Joseph. So God is with Joseph. God makes Joseph very prosperous. So Joseph finds a bunch of favor from his boss, finds a bunch of favor from the Lord, and uh, God blesses Joseph and blesses the Egyptian's house. Um, that's what they call um, Potiphar here. They bless his house on account of Joseph. Again, this is like Genesis chapter 12 blessing in mind here, what God promises Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And so the line of Abraham, this blessed line should be a blessing, right? So ultimately the Messiah, but also the plural offspring of Abraham, all those who descend from him, should be blessings to other people, and God is happy to bless those nations through him. So Potiphar is blessed, but then the story takes a quick turn when Potiphar's wife seeks to tempt Joseph. So she sees Joseph as this handsome, young, and fit man, and one day she has all the guards out of the house, and when she has Joseph alone, tries to seduce him and tries to grab him by his coat when he turns to flee away because he's really a righteous man in God's eyes. And so as he's trying to get away, um, she holds on to his coat and Joseph just leaves it behind because he wants to get out of there. Um, but unfortunately for Joseph, Potiphar's wife holds on to this coat to be like some blackmail to him, but really to incriminate him. So when Potiphar gets back, she says, oh, look at that Hebrew slave of yours. He, he tried to take advantage of me. And so Potiphar uh, believes the side of his wife and sends Joseph into prison. And that's a lot to skip over. Anything else, Dylan, before we skip over everything? Like Corey mentioned, the Lord is with Joseph. And so because of that, even in this unfortunate circumstance, we see that God is utilizing these circumstances in order to 
ultimately bring about a specific end goal. And so even in prison now, after having been shipped out from Potiphar's house as a result of this false incrimination, we see that Joseph actually gains favor now with the prison warden. And so just like Joseph was put over the entirety of Potiphar's house such that Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything except what he's going to eat, so too do we now see Joseph being put over the entire prison such that the prison warden doesn't have to worry about anything. So basically, the prisoners are put under the care of Joseph, who is himself a prisoner, all because the Lord is with Joseph. And so that point is going to be important as we then move into chapter 40 and start talking about some new prisoners that actually get thrown under Joseph's care. So Joseph is placed in this prison that is actually reserved for a lot of those who serve the royals. And so Pharaoh's people who he doesn't want anymore, who tick Pharaoh off or whatever else, get thrown into the same prison, which includes the royal cupbearer, as well as the royal baker. And so in chapter 40, we're going to see how the royal cupbearer and the royal baker get thrown into this prison and both have dreams that are ultimately going to be interpreted by Joseph. And so they have dreams, they can't interpret them, they have no idea what they mean. And so in turn, they turn to anybody else who might interpret them. And then Joseph comes on the scene and actually gives credit to God for being able to interpret dreams. And so he actually asks them, what are their dreams? God will interpret them for you. So the chief cupbearer gives Joseph his dream. It says, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed Pharaoh's cup in the hand of Pharaoh. So then Joseph takes that dream and interprets it and basically says, you are going to be restored to your position in three days. And that because of that, Pharaoh is going to once again look on you with favor, make you his cupbearer, so please remember me. And we're going to see that the cupbearer, as soon as he is restored, does not remember Joseph. Now to the baker, he turns and interprets his dream. The baker says uh, that he sees a bunch of baskets on top of his head with baked goods in them, and that birds are eating the baked goods. And this guy does not get his good news as the cupbearer, Joseph looks at him and says, these baskets represent three days. Basically, the birds eating the bread and the baked goods out of the baskets means that you are going to be impaled and killed by Pharaoh, and that ultimately you are going to be feasted on by birds hanging on an impaling stake. So the cupbearer gets restored. The baker gets dead. Quite unfortunate for the baker. Uh, moving on though, we already noted that the cupbearer does not remember Joseph, at least not yet. And so the cupbearer is restored. He ends up going back to Pharaoh, who in 41, we're going to see, actually has a dream himself. None of the wise men are able to interpret this dream of Pharaoh. And so the cupbearer, then remembering Joseph, two years later, says, hey, I actually got a guy. He helped me out. Maybe he can help you out. And so as a result, Joseph is called from prison, brought before Pharaoh, and is able to proclaim that God can interpret Pharaoh's dream. 
And then things start going uphill from there. Joseph is brought out of prison and Pharaoh inquires of him and says, can you in fact interpret my dream? Joseph says, I cannot interpret your dream, but God can. And so Pharaoh then gives him his two dreams. So uh, Pharaoh has some really interesting dreams. The first dream, he sees seven cows. Right? So this is like the very first eight verses of chapter 41. And he sees these nice, big, healthy cows. And then there's these really ugly, malnourished and skinny cows. And the ugly cows eat the big, healthy, plump cows. Okay, so then he fell asleep a second time and dreamed, and he sees seven ears of grain, and they're plump and good, and they're all growing on one stalk. And then after them sprouted seven ears that were thin and blighted by the east wind. Another shout out to the theme of east and the significance there. It says east wind um, makes it thin, uh, not very good. And so again, these... Uh, the second group of seven, in this case, the seven ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. And so Pharaoh is really troubled by this, and he's looking all around for people to help him out. And ultimately, Joseph says, these dreams um, are one and the same, right? So um, this is uh, to say we're about to have seven really plentiful years of harvests. And after that, there's going to be seven really gnarly years of famine. And it's going to eat up the first seven years in a way that no one will remember the good that came in the first seven years because the drought and the famine will be so severe. And so he says, this is um, Joseph now advising Pharaoh, you, you better get a wise and discerning person to take care over everything because... You need to save up in the seven good years to be ready for the seven bad years. And um, just as um, Joseph has done, you know, he gave credit to God. Oh, this is um, God's power to interpret. So let's see if he'll do it. God does it. And uh, Pharaoh notices it. If you go down to um, verse 39, um, you see Pharaoh praise Joseph. Um, gives him a little brag. So um, he thinks about Joseph's proposal and says, well, like, where else can we find someone who has the spirit of God in them? So Pharaoh says, you, you're the guy. God has shown you all this. So there's obviously no one as discerning and as wise as you are. You're going to be over my house. Um, all my people shall order themselves as you command and he says, only as regards the throne, I will be greater than you. So Joseph is second in command in all of Egypt. And so Joseph does exactly as he says he will do in his plan. So he sets out and actually goes and starts collecting the grain from the seven years of plenty so that they might have it as soon as the famine hits. And sure enough, just as Joseph predicts, the years of famine come, Egypt has enough grain, but also all of the other nations start coming to Egypt in order to buy grain. So all the Egyptians are buying grain, but everybody else is coming to Egypt to buy grain. And the text says that they come to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. 
And so we kind of see in this story a very interesting pattern where God actually being with Jacob is utilizing Jacob's circumstances to his ultimate good and glory. And so because of this, there's kind of a little illusion. Corey and I were talking at the beginning uh, as we were prepping for the podcast about this possible illusion where all of the nations start coming to Joseph in order to get provisions because the famine is so severe. And so if you remember all the way back to Abraham, the promise that was given to Abraham was that all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed through him. And so that is the capital T blessing that we've been talking about all the way through up until this point. And so that blessing seems to, in some sense, be exemplified here in Joseph, where all of the nations are actually coming to Joseph to be blessed by buying food and not dying. And so it's kind of an interesting thing. It might not be as significant as we're letting on a reading, uh, but it is still interesting nonetheless. One other thing that was sort of odd that we also kind of tossed around that may or may not be important is the fact that Joseph is in Egypt. Egypt's a bad place. We're going to see that. We've already seen that. We're going to see that in the future. That Egypt is not regarded as a great place in the scriptures. And as a result, people are coming to Joseph to be blessed. But Joseph is in Egypt, meaning that people are actually coming to Egypt to be blessed by Joseph. And so that was just a little interesting aside. God actually does forecast this as he's talking to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. He tells Abraham that ultimately his descendants are going to be sojourners in a foreign land. And so this is kind of the introduction to that bit. But a little interesting aside uh, that might have some weight to it, uh, but Corey and I were tossing that around. So what we have then in recap is we are focusing on Joseph. From 37 all the way through the end of the book, we're going to be really focusing on Joseph. However, in the middle of all this, we see in chapter 38 a brief interruption talking about Judah. And so Judah gets talked about the sons that are born to Judah as a result of his interesting affair with Tamar are talked about. And those are actually going to be really important moving on. We're going to see in, save the book of Ruth, for example, how those sons are important. Keep Judah in the back of your mind because he's going to come up again. But so far, we're focusing on Joseph was really loved by his father. He gets sold into slavery. God utilizes these circumstances. And to this point, we've seen how God uses these circumstances so much that through Joseph, all of the world are actually able to eat because the famine is so severe that it doesn't just affect Egypt. It affects all of these nations. And so, so far, the fruition then of God utilizing the unfortunate circumstances of Joseph, he's able to provide food, but not only is he able to provide food for the world, we're going to see that he's able to provide food for his, a very specific group of people that we're going to talk about next week. We're going to go ahead and in the episode, before I go into anything uh, regarding the closing of the episode, Corey, anything else to add to that conclusion? One last thing, little thing I want to throw in there is this is also a repeated story. Um, Abraham, back when he was called Abram and Sarai, they experienced a famine in the promised land and went down to Egypt. 
And so we see Joseph, there is a famine. He's already in Egypt. And we're going to see God work in some mighty ways through a very unfortunate circumstance. And so it's a repeat of a story, but now it's going to be something so much different and so much greater. So we're seeing a lot of Abraham repeats, and we're going to see maybe for the first time God blessing a nation and a multitude of nations because of his offspring, just as was promised in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Exactly. And so this story really does serve to prep us then for next week's episode, where we're going to see some culmination to the book of Genesis as a whole, in a way, a culmination to the idea of blessing, at least as outlined in Genesis. That being said, we are absolutely not done with the idea of blessing We're going to cover that as we jump into Exodus here in a few weeks. So what we've done today is we went through and kind of highlighted some key bullet points for each of these chapters instead of going and reading all of these chapters. So because of that, I would encourage you guys to go back and read these chapters for yourself. Read them, really study them, pay attention to the narrative elements, the narrative cues, the characters, the setting, etc. that are placed in these chapters so that you can have a firm grasp of these chapters for yourselves. Don't utilize Corey and my commentary as the end-all authority on what these chapters have to say. Corey and I are not attempting to tell you exactly what these passages say for sure, definite, our word is gospel. It's it's not like that. Instead, what we would like to do is we would really like to encourage you guys to read the scriptures for yourself. Employ the methods that Corey and I utilize in this podcast for yourself so that you too can see the unified story of the scripture come together. Instead of using the scriptures as reference material, as we often do, where we try to prove our theological positions, let's actually read through the scriptures and ask the question, what is the author trying to say, and how does this narrative build on itself to create an overall story? So that's really what Corey and I are trying to get at in this particular episode. That's why we didn't read through every single one of these chapters. Go back, read them yourself. We're just trying to give you the overall story and how it connects. And with that, we're going to go ahead and end the episode. So traditional closing statements. If you guys do have any questions about the method, about how you guys should approach the scriptures, about why we would encourage you to approach the scriptures in this way, anything like that or anything else, feel free to email us. The email address is scripturechronicles at gmail.com. Send in your questions. We'll respond to those on a one-off basis. We also eventually will have a Q&A episode where we actually respond to a whole bunch of your questions at once. So go ahead and email in your questions if you have them. Also, if you guys would like the most real-time information on the podcast, the best place for that is the Facebook page, Scripture Chronicles. You can also access all the information you need on our website, The Bible is a Story. Dot com. There you can access the podcast, blogs, resources, etc. That's constantly being updated, new blogs, new things like that all the time. So check that out. Lastly, if you guys do want to help out the show, you can do that in a multitude of ways. First off, you can pray for the show. We definitely covet your prayers. Secondly, 
If you are blessed by the show, please do share it, tell your friends, send it on Facebook, whatever else. If you get the word out on the show, that is ultimately the best way to support the show. Finally, if you do want to come alongside us and support the show financially, you can do that as well. Everything is paid for out of our own pocket. So if you want to help us out with that, you can do that by going to the website, thebibleisastory.com, clicking on donate, and that is how you can do that. Guys, again, thank you for tuning into today's episode. We did do something a little different where we jumped all the way through a whole bunch of chapters and covered some big macroscopic, that's a big word, it just means you know we zoomed out and covered some big story elements or story themes. And we're going to be doing that uh, a bunch coming up in some episodes in the future. So uh, prepare yourselves for that. Again, guys, thank you. Shalom, adios. Shalom, adios. Ah, I was off. Dang it. Shit. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys.